Israel has confirmed the covenant with the Lord. They came to Mount Sinai. They saw the glory of the Lord. They agreed to serve him. Moses came down with the commandments of the law. This was the book of the law that had the commandments about oxen and slavery and marriage and all sorts of things. And they agreed to keep that law. So last week we saw the ceremonies that confirmed that covenant. They sacrificed bulls to the Lord and the elders went up on the mountain and ate the covenant meal in the presence of the Lord. And it says they saw the Lord, which was a a wonderful topic for us to discuss. And they came back down and God called Moses to come back because he has more to reveal to him. So Moses has gone up the mountain. He took Joshua with him. One of, the, one of the first times we see Joshua, not the first. And he's going to be with Moses on the mountain, but he's not going to go up, as it said last time, into the cloud, up to where the Lord was. And he's going to be there for 40 days and 40 nights, receiving what we're going to discuss now, the pattern of the tabernacle. We've seen the law, and now we're going to see the design for the implements of worship in Israel. How are they to worship the Lord? God is going to prescribe it for them. The sanctuary, its furnishings, its tools, the garments for the priests that they would wear. And that's what we're going to get in Exodus. It's going to give them all of the pieces. And it's going to end with them constructing all of those pieces and dedicating those pieces. When you get into Leviticus, he's going to describe the ceremonies that are going to be performed with these implements and in this sanctuary. The main goal for us today is to understand and grasp the visual design of the tabernacle as it is given here. So tonight is going to be much more of a Bible study than a sermon, but that is just fine. This is in here, and we need to understand this. As we read through it, you know, you're doing your yearly Bible reading or something. You know, we all do it. You can kind of go, okay, 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 all right, and moving on. You're more reading the subtitles, the subheadings, than you're reading anything else. Well, tonight we're going to go real slow, and we're going to break it down, and we're going to hopefully assemble this in our minds. But not only are we going to try to understand what the visual design of the tabernacle looked like, we're going to also look at the symbolism of these things. Hebrews chapter 8 verse 5 tells us regarding the tabernacle and the temple which came later, they serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. That is the temple and the tabernacle were copies, shadows of heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. So the writer to the Hebrews tells us that this structure we're going to read about was a picture of heaven and heaven's temple and tabernacle. I remember being in my Romans class, I believe it was, in in college and seminary and Somebody raised their hand after we read these sorts of passages and says, this doesn't actually mean that there's a heavenly tabernacle, does it? And my professor, who was at a very dry sense of humor, says, well, why don't you read that verse again and tell me what you think? And it's like, well, that doesn't seem right. Well, we're going to look at this and we're going to see that it is, in fact, remarkably symbolic and instructive for us and is, in fact, a picture of what heaven looks like according to some of these passages that we're going to read. There's a wealth of symbolism for us to draw from each of these pieces. Now, good godly men will find symbolism in every nook and cranny of the tabernacle, even to the number of things and the dimensions of things. I'm not so sure about all of that. There's plenty for us to grasp that is definitely symbolic 
And, you know, the, the color of certain things may have certain symbolism and it may not. We're not going to focus so much on that. I just want us to be able to see what each piece represented, primarily how it was reflected in Christ. And then if we have time at the end, we'll look at a, at a couple other ways you can read this and see how God was painting a very layered picture for Israel by giving them this. And of course, ultimately, it all points to Jesus Christ. Romans 10 verse 4 says, The end of the law is Christ Jesus for all who believe. So let's read chapter 25, and we'll begin with verses 1 through 9. So Moses is on the mountain, him and Joshua. He's left Joshua behind and gone up into the cloud. And then the Lord said to Moses, verse 1, Speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them, gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones and stones for setting for the ephod and for the breastpiece. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst." Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so you shall make it. So the first thing God asked Moses to do is to take up a collection for all the materials that they're going to need. And what I love about this, and we could preach this on its own, is that this was not coercive upon the people. Do you see what he says in verse 2? From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. God is not telling Moses, knock on people's doors, take away all their nice stuff, and make a tabernacle out of it. He says, put the need out there, and they will give to it. This is very similar to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 9-7. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So that is why we don't make such a big deal about money around here. We have the offering boxes in the back. We have it on the website. When a need arises, like the building, I don't mind putting it in front of you and letting you know what we need, but I will never beat anybody over the head in order to get money from them. And there are some churches, and maybe you've been at some of these, that it seems like the most important thing is the budget, is getting money, getting those pledge cards. And, you know, there, there's a whole mess of problems that can come from focusing too much on money. But it should be our delight to contribute to God's work. Whether that's for a building like they were doing here and like we've been doing for not so long here or for anything else. And God doesn't want them to donate money necessarily, but to give them the materials that they will need. And they were to build, he says, a sanctuary in verse 8. This is the Hebrew word mikdash. And it comes from, is related to the word kadash, which means holy or to set apart. So, so you're going to make me a set-apart place where I can come and dwell with you. This is a major theme of the book of Exodus that we've seen. That God is real, that he intervenes in the world, and he dwells among his people. And of course, John 1.14 says that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, which is a deliberate callback to what the Lord is telling Moses here. He says, I'm going to send my son to come and dwell among you. And so the Lord is going to be with the people of Israel and he's going to build a sanctuary. And verse 9 is where we have that injunction that Hebrews quoted to build it according to God's design. For it was a heavenly shadow 
And he tells them what things they were to bring. Number one, they were to bring precious metals, gold, silver, and bronze. They were to bring fine fabrics and threads. So specifically, they're asking for the colors for scarlet or red and blue and purple. And, and it says also twined linen. So any kind of high quality cloth that they could use. He asked them for various kinds of skins and leather for acacia wood, which is a, a wood that you can sand and you can cut and it will still hold its shape and hold its strength for oil and spices, and also for gemstones. Now, you might say, where did they get all this stuff? And there are even some cute Bible, Bible scholars, supposedly, that say this is evidence that this was all made up because they didn't have any of that stuff. Oh, yes, they did. Don't you remember Exodus 12? He said, before you leave on the night of Passover, knock on your slave master's door and say, hey, we're heading out. Do you got anything for me? And it says they plundered the Egyptians. They were so ready to get rid of these people that they said, take everything, whatever you got, just take it, get it out of here. They gave them 430 years of wages in one night. So they plundered the Egyptians. So they had all this. And there's a whole other lesson to talk about here that in order to get these things, they would have had to break an awful lot of nice stuff. You need gold? Well, I've got this beautiful gold carving here, but I guess I'm going to have to give that away. Oh, yeah, I have this beautiful tapestry, and it's got blue and red and, and purple in it, but I'd have to rip it up. So David said, I won't give my Lord anything that doesn't first cost me something. So there's something to be said for that there. But this is what he's asking for. So these are the kind of materials he's going to reference as he goes through these designs. So let's move on. We're going to be seeing not every piece of the tabernacle. We just simply don't have enough time, but we're going to get a lot of the big ones. So let's begin in verse 10 through 22. They shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold, inside and outside shall you overlay it, and you shall make on it a molding of gold around it. You shall cast four rings of gold for it, and put them on its four feet, two rings on the one side of it, and two rings on the other side of it. You shall make poles of acacia wood, and overlay them with gold. And you shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark, to carry the ark by them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark, they shall not be taken from it. And you shall put into the ark the testimony that I shall give you. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length and a cubit and a half its breadth. And you shall make two cherubim of gold. Of hammered work shall you make them on the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub on the one end and the one cherub on the other end. Of one piece with the mercy seat shall you make the cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings, their faces to one another. Toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be. And you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. There I will meet with you, and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. There are... In the end, going to be six pieces of furniture, kind of a strange word for us because we think of a couch when we think of furniture, but six pieces, implements, furnishings that were to be used in the tabernacle. By the way, the word tabernacle, I missed this, is the word mishkan, and it just means dwelling place because God is going to dwell with the people. And the first piece is the famous Ark of the Covenant. Now, this is important. The word there for Ark is aron, and it just means a container or a chest. Note this. This is not the same word that was used 
to describe Noah's ark or the ark in which Moses was placed. That was the Hebrew word teva. This is the word aron. The only other place you see this used is in Genesis 50, 26, when it talks about Joseph's coffin that they placed him in. So it's the same English word, which means a container or a chest, but it's important to know we're not trying to figure out how this ark relates to Noah's ark. It doesn't. It's two different words. It's just a big box, but it's more than just that. Also an important note, the measure of those days and in the Bible is the cubit. You have no idea what that is? Well, let me explain it to you. This is the distance from your fingertip to your elbow. This is about 18 inches. That's a cubit. So he's going to be measuring in cubits. And you might say, how strange to use a part of your body to measure things. Well, we use feet to measure things, do we not? They use the cubit. Approximately 18 inches. So what they're making here is the Ark of the Covenant. It's a wooden chest. So it's carved out of that acacia wood that was brought in. 45 inches long, 27 inches high, and 27 inches wide. All overlaid with gold. So kind of get those dimensions in your mind. About the size of a really big toolbox or a chest that maybe you have at the foot of your bed. But it's all overlaid with gold. It says that there was to be a molding of gold around it. This is very nonspecific. The Lord is going to use a man named Bezalel to make all of these things. And there's actually some room given here for artistic interpretation because the Holy Spirit will be upon Bezalel to make these things. So he's saying, don't just make a box. Make it beautiful. Make a molding around it. Give it a design. And it's also supposed to have four feet that's just kind of given in passing, but this is so that it does not rest directly upon the ground because what's in it is holy and it itself will be holy for that reason. And attached to that to the feet were to be four rings. Now, if you were to have it directly on the bottom, of course, the weight would tip it over if you tried to carry it. So you can imagine the feet referring to what runs up the sides in order to support it. But they were to put poles of acacia wood, four rings and two poles, one on each side to carry it, and they were to gild the wood, they were to cover it in gold. And within it, within the chest, within the ark, were to be the tablets of the Ten Commandments that God is going to give them. Later on, they're also going to include the rest of the law, the five books that Moses will write. He's going to give it to Joshua, his last act, and says, put this in the Ark of the Covenant. Also inside would be a jar of manna and Aaron's rod that is going to bud. It also has what it's called the mercy seat. Now, you hear mercy seat and you think chair. And as much as I love Revelation song 2, when it says, sing a new song to him who sits on heaven's mercy seat, it's not a chair. You don't sit on it. It was the lid of the box of the Ark of the Covenant. In fact, the word is kaporet. It just means covering. The covering of the Ark of the Covenant. But because, of course, this is where mercy would be provided, the, the seat, right? We talk about the county seat. This is the mercy seat. That's where that name came from. This is where, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would enter and sprinkle the blood. Because this was a covering for the law, the broken law. It was pure gold. So the lid of the box was not wooden, but it was gold. And it was to be forged and made into one piece, with two cherubim on the top. These are angels whose wings were to cover the mercy seat. Now, we don't have any idea what a cherub looks like. 
There are certain passages of the Bible that describe God riding upon a cherub. And many angels in this culture were thought of as griffin-like figures, lions that had wings or beasts that had wings. So we, we are used to seeing the, the kneeling human figure angel with the wings in the, all the depictions. It could have been something more animal in appearance. And God says, I will speak to you from between the cherubim. Number 789 is going to say, and God spoke from between the cherubim. Actually, when they make the temple later on, they're going to have two giant cherubim statues in the Holy of Holies. So everything in the temple was an expansion upon what was in the tabernacle. This was the Lord's presence. The Ark of the Covenant was to represent the presence of God. Wherever the Ark was, the Lord was. Now, of course, we know that God is not bound to any particular object. But... It was grievous when the ark was stolen from Israel by the Philistines. It was also grievous for the Philistines, but for a much different reason, because God started afflicting them with plagues for holding on to something they shouldn't have held on to. It was not to be jostled. We're going to read about when it was carried. Very often the cartoons and the movies you've seen, when they carry the ark, there it is, shining in the sun. No, no, no. It was to be wrapped up. It would be covered with a blue cloth so that it could not be seen It would not be seen by anybody except the high priest once a year on the Day of Atonement. And in Christ, the Ark of the Covenant becomes a picture of the blood that covers the broken law for our sins. The tablets that Moses will place into the the law will represent not just God's law, but the fact that it's been broken. We broke the law. And in Romans 3.25, it tells us that God put Christ forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. God put forward as a propitiation. You know, I'm going to say this in all charity and kindness, but we need to understand why some of these things are done. There was a big to-do several years ago, many years ago, I guess now, when some of the newer translations didn't use the word propitiation in that translation. They used the word covering. And many people were angry because they were saying they're trying to take propitiation out of the Bible and, and things like that. The Greek word there, hilasterion, is what's translated, is what's used to translate kapareth in the Old Testament, mercy seat, the covering. It's, it's an intentional callback to this mercy seat. So when it says when God put forward Jesus as a propitiation by his blood, every Jew in that audience who knew their Old Testament would have immediately known the hilasterion is what covers the ark. And now you can start to see the picture there, the sprinkled blood that covers the, the law that has been broken. Jesus is our covering. He also is the one who carries the presence of God with him, is he not? He sprinkled his blood to make atonement for sins, a once-for-all sacrifice. And he was propitiation. He died on the cross so that you don't have to. He appeased the wrath of God in so doing. So that's the Ark of the Covenant. We're going to have a lot of stories in the Bible that concern the Ark of the Covenant. You've got to know what this is. Don't get your theology from Indiana Jones. Get it from Scripture. It'll tell you all you need to know about the Ark of the Covenant. And I can't pass without telling this story I remember watching History Channel or National Geographic or something, and there is a, a colony of, of people, there's a tribe in, in Africa somewhere, and as anthropologists continued to study this tribe, they realized that they were of Jewish extraction. Many of their, of their 
rituals and the things they did were, were in fact Jewish traditions. And they had this drum that they would carry around, which was over many years of corruption and, and uh, mistranslation, I guess, became their Ark of the Covenant. And so the, the channel begins to ask the question, so apparently the Ark of the Covenant was a drum. And it's like, if you open your Bible, it's got DIY instructions for building your own Ark of the Covenant. <laughs> Don't do that. But it tells you how to build it. And it was so flabbergasting to me. It's like, this is, that's wrong. Just read what the word says. Don't just assume because you found somebody doing it wrong that they must have it right. Well, let's move on to the next one. Verse 23. You shall make a table of acacia wood. Two cubits shall be its length, a cubit its breadth, a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold and make a molding of gold around it. And you shall make a rim around it, a handbreadth wide, and a molding of gold around the rim. And you shall make for it four rings of gold and fasten the rings to the four corners at its four legs. Close to the frame, the rings shall lie as holders for the poles to carry the table. You shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. And the table shall be carried with these. And you shall make its plates and dishes for incense and its flagons and bowls with which to pour drink offerings. You shall make them of pure gold and you shall set the bread of the presence on the table before me regularly. So the second of six pieces is the table of showbread. That's the classic way of, of calling it or the table of the bread of the presence. This was a table made of that same acacia wood, three feet long, 18 inches wide and 27 inches tall. And I was struck when I read that. I'm like, that's a really low table. Well, yes. In this culture, they didn't sit at table. They reclined at table. So this was exactly how it should have been. And it also was to be covered and overlaid with gold. It was to be given a gold molding all around. And it had a rim. Now, this is, this is not quite certain what it means. Does this mean it was something that came upward in order to prevent things from falling off? Or was it a further extension of the table in order to be decorative? It says about a hand breadth. This was approximately three inches, so about the, the width of your hand, about three inches wide. And it also had those four rings. So like the Ark of the Covenant, it could be carried with the similar poles. But you remember the Ark of the Covenant was to always have the poles in the rings so that nobody ever touched the Ark of the Covenant. But the table, you would remove the poles because it would be used daily. Now upon it were to be golden plates, golden dishes that would hold incense, we're going to have an incense altar that we'll read about in a few weeks, as well as cups and bowls for drink offerings. A drink offering was something that would be poured out to the Lord. So when they needed to do one of those, they would go into the holy place, remove the flagons, remove the cups, go back out into the courtyard and, and pour that out. Most importantly, however, upon this table was to go the bread of the presence or the show bread. These were 12 unleavened loaves that were made every Sabbath day in stacks of six. Read about this in Leviticus chapter 24. It tells you about this whole ritual. They would be sprinkled with frankincense upon them, and they would be eaten by the priests. And this is the story where David and his men come to the tabernacle, and they're so hungry. The only thing that is there to eat is the bread of the presence, and they ate it. And this is where Jesus talks about the Sabbath day, and he says, this was not so holy that it couldn't be used to help somebody who was desperate and starving. So why are you making such a big deal about the Sabbath? This is the table that was in that story. 
Now, in a, in a very real sense, the tabernacle was to function like God's house. This is where God lives. So there's a table in it. There's his food in a symbolic way, although, although it was, of course, eaten by the priests. It was not as though God needed to eat anything. In fact, to one of the prophets, he goes, do you think I get hungry? Do you think I get thirsty? I created the world. And there's a, a wealth of symbolism that's, a, that's applied to this, and we'll get to some of that at the end, but... It reminds me of what Jesus said in John 6, 35, when Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. The bread of the presence was to represent, in many ways, the manna that came to them in the wilderness. And just like that, Jesus came into our wilderness to give us life. He was multiplying bread to the people when they came to him. And we also must partake of him through faith in order to be given new life. Just as bread strengthens you and enables you to continue, you will not be able to live forever until you have partaken of Jesus, eaten his flesh and drank his blood, as he said. So for us, when we partake of communion, that is, of course, looking back to the death of Jesus and the Last Supper. But that unleavened bread was commemorated also in the tabernacle and later the temple, the bread of the presence that was on this golden temple. So when we together share in the bread and the cup, we are also in this same line of tradition that was memorialized by the table of showbread or the bread of the presence, that Jesus Christ is the only one that can satisfy you. Haven't you found that to be true? For, I mean, we're talking about heaven, but even beyond that, I find when I'm walking with the Lord and I'm reading my Bible every day and I'm not indulging in sin, I, I mean, very simply, I just feel better. Even if, even if the, the problems don't go away, I know that I'm secure in the Lord. But when I start to give in to distraction and, and neglect these things, I found that I, I start to get frantic and get stressed and get anxious. But when I come back to the Lord and I, I return unto Jesus and I... I partake again of the bread of life, it's like, all right, I'm, I'm feeling good now. I'm strengthened again to keep going. We were joking around some of the guys the other day talking about our devotions. And it's like, you know, a, a morning devotion gives you 24 hours of really strong protection and another 24 hours of okay protection, and then, you, then, then you're in trouble. That's what I found. And that's not Bible. That's just my experience. Like if I read my Bible and prayed today, I'm good. You know, I can fight temptation. I'm ready to roll. The next day is a little more tough. And then on day three, I'm toast. So you shouldn't wait three days. You should do it every day. Seek the Lord morning and evening like they would the bread. Moving on, verse 31. You shall make a lampstand of pure gold. The lampstand shall be made of hammered work. Its base, its stem, its cups, its calyxes, and its flowers shall be of one piece with it. And there shall be six branches going out of its sides, three branches of the lampstand out of one side of it, and three branches of the lampstand out of the other side of it. Three cups made like almond blossoms, each with calyx and flower on one branch, and three cups made like almond blossoms, each with calyx and flower on the other branch. So for the six branches going out of the lampstand. And on the lampstand itself, there shall be four cups made like almond blossoms with their calyxes and flowers. And the calyx of one piece with it under each pair of the six branches going out from the lampstand. Their calyxes and their branches shall be of one piece with it. The whole of it, a single piece of hammered work of pure gold. You shall make seven lamps for it. And the lamps shall be set up so as to give light on the space in front of it. Its tongs and their trays shall be of pure gold. It shall be made with all these utensils out of a talent of pure gold. And see that you make them after the pattern for them which is being shown you on the mountain. 
there's that kind of refrain. See that you make it according to the pattern I'm showing you. The third of six furnishings was the golden lampstand, the famous menorah. This was not wood that was overlaid with gold. This was entirely golden. So this was to be forged and heated and hammered. Would have required a lot of skill to make this thing. And did you notice the floral imagery that it uses? Talking about its flowers. That's why some of these new translations are so great because they, they really emphasize what the language is saying. A calyx is the green part that is just under the blossom of a flower. And then, of course, you know, the petals and the flower itself are the colorful part. So there was to be a base and then a single stem going up, and that would be the first lamp. And then there were to be six lamps, three on either side of it, branching from the central stem. And at the top and the base of each branch was an almond blossom. So there would be a blossom where the lamp would be set, and then there would be a blossom, a, a golden blossom at the bottom where it would begin. And we actually have a pretty good idea of what this looked like because we have reliefs, which are things carved into rock, of other nations that carried away the implements of the temple. And we see it carved there, and it looked just about like what you're used to seeing. That's the golden lampstand. All the utensils were to be made of gold because this was a functioning lamp. So you'd have had to put wicks in it. You'd have had to trim them. But all of it was to be made of gold. Everything that was to be touching this thing was made of gold. 75 pounds of gold. That's about how much a talent was. 75 pounds. And this lampstand was never to go out. It was to be constantly burning and tended by the priests, which is probably why in Samuel, we see Samuel sleeping in the holy place because it was probably his job to stay up during the night shift and make sure that the lamp stayed lit. Every house, remember this is the house of the Lord, needed light. And I wasn't able to confirm this tradition, but some of the folks I was reading say that it was tradition that during the night, the, the screen of the holy place would be removed so that the light of the, of the lampstand would shine and everybody could see the holy place glowing in the middle of the camp. Zechariah chapter 4, you're familiar with this, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, has a vision of the lampstand with two olive trees next to it. And it, what it shows is that no one's having to tend this lampstand. It's being tended all on its own by the Lord. And that's when he says, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit. Revelation chapter 4 has before the throne of God a seven-branch lampstand, seven lamps that were the sevenfold spirit of God. So this lampstand represented, among other things, the spirit of the Lord, that the Holy Spirit was there. And it reminds me also of what Jesus said in John 8, 12, when Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus shone down into our world. Darkness feared the light. Darkness hated the light. But those of us who came to it, it was the light of life, wasn't it? And we've received that. And he gives us his Holy Spirit who fills us up. And uses us to shine that light around the world. Jesus remarkably said, I am the light of the world. And then later pointed to his disciples and said, you are the light of the world. So you, in the same way, are to be a light that never goes out. Never quenching the Holy Spirit of God who is within you. To let people know that there is atonement to be found in the Holy of Holies. To be shining out that light among the people so that they know where God may be found. That's the gold lampstand. So these are the first three 
furnishings. You have the Ark of the Covenant, you have the gold lampstand, and you have the table of showbread or the bread of the presence. And after giving three of those, God's going to move on to detail the pattern of the tabernacle itself. So let's look at chapter 26, and we're going to do some big sections here. Try to follow it if you can, but we'll come back and, and we'll explain. Moreover, you shall make the tabernacle with ten curtains of fine twined linen and blue and purple and scarlet yarns. You shall make them with cherubim skillfully worked into them. The length of each curtain shall be twenty-eight cubits, and the breadth of each curtain four cubits. All the curtains shall be the same size. Five curtains shall be coupled to one another, and the other five curtains shall be coupled to one another. And you shall make loops of blue on the edge of the outermost curtain in the first set. Likewise, you shall make loops on the edge of the outermost curtain in the second set. Fifty loops you shall make on the one curtain, and fifty loops you shall make on the edge of the curtain that is in the second set. The loops shall be opposite one another, and you shall make fifty clasps of gold, and couple the curtains one to the other with the clasps, so that the tabernacle may be a single whole. You shall also make curtains of goat's hair for a tent over the tabernacle. Eleven curtains shall you make. The length of each curtain shall be 30 cubits, and the breadth of each curtain 4 cubits. The 11 curtains shall be the same size. You shall couple 5 curtains by themselves and 6 curtains by themselves. And the 6th curtain you shall double over at the front of the tent. You shall make 50 loops on the edge of the curtain that is outermost in one set, and 50 loops on the edge of the curtain that is outermost in the second set. You shall make 50 clasps of bronze and put the clasps into the loops and couple the tent together that it may be a single whole. And the part that remains of the curtains of the tent, the half curtain that remains, shall hang over the back of the tabernacle. And the extra that remains in the length of the curtains, the cubit on the one side and the cubit on the other side, shall hang over the sides of the tabernacle on this side and that side to cover it. And you shall make for the tent a covering of tanned ram skins and a covering of goat skins on top. I know that's a lot, so let's break it down. He's talking about the layers of covering for the sanctuary. And of course, the tabernacle was essentially a great tent. It was much more stable and secure than that. But there were four layers of coverings that went over this. First, there were ten curtains of blue, purple, and red with cherubim embroidered on them. So there would have been imagery that was woven into these, these curtains. And there would be 10 of them. Each one was 42 feet by 6 feet. And he says, take five of them, take you know, five and five, and join them together, weave them together, so that now you've got these two massive coverings. And then on the outer edge, or the inner edge, I guess it would be, you'll make 50 blue loops and link them together with gold clasps. So that now you've got this giant covering for the tabernacle, and this would be the bottom layer. Then you would have a woven layer of goat's hair. There were 11 of these, and these were 45 feet by 6 feet. So they would have been bigger than the one that was beneath. These were joined five together and then six together, joined the same way with the bronze rings. And there would have been extra length on each side. So there would have been some that hung down, not very far, but over the front and over the back. And it also would have gone down past the curtain at the, at the bottom. And then there was a, a layer of leather. Now this is interesting because you'll see that it says tanned ram's skins. This word for, for ram, we're really not quite sure what animal this was. And some of the older translations will have dolphin or dugong, 
which was a, a kind of manatee skin. And either way, I, I do think it's interesting that this, this marine animal was, was possible because this is probably intended to be a waterproof lair. That if it rains on, on the tabernacle, that it's not going to get wet. So using the skin of an animal that lived in the water would have made an awful lot of sense, but uh, leather would have done the same thing. Also, the newer translations have the word tanned leather. The older ones have red. Those words are very related to each other because when you tan leather, it takes on that reddish color. Uh, some people have drawn an awful lot of symbolism out of the red covering. I don't know how, how uh, useful that is because it might not say red. And then over that, there was another covering of goat skins, which would have protected it from the elements. So you can see this. You have over top, you have a goat skin layer, sand, dirt, you know, anything sparks from the fires nearby that would have gone on the goat skin. Beneath that, you have a waterproof layer of leather, perhaps even of some kind of marine animal. Beneath that, you have woven goat's hair which was hanging over and, and covering and making sure that nothing actually touched the bottom layer, which was this skillfully woven of blue and red and scarlet with angels woven into it. And the two bottom layers would have uh, been linked together so that when they carried the tabernacle, because you had to dismantle it, they would have separated it instead of having this massive thing that they had to, to carry all at once. And there are differences of interpretation when it says to make a tent over the tabernacle in verse 7. Uh, obviously, the, the bottommost layer would have been draped over the wood framing that we're going to talk about in a minute. And there are those who then say, and now everything above that would have been pulled tight like a tent. And a lot of our imagery shows that. Uh, that's entirely possible so that it would have been kind of running off the sides and never actually touching the bottom. Um, but it, it doesn't make that very clear. So you can think about that on your own time. So that's the coverings of it. Verse, four, uh, verse 15. You shall make upright frames for the tabernacle of acacia wood. Ten cubits shall be the length of a frame, and a cubit and a half the breadth of each frame. There shall be two tenons in each frame for fitting together. So shall you do for all the frames of the tabernacle. You shall make the frames for the tabernacle, twenty frames for the south side, and forty bases of silver you shall make under the twenty frames. Two bases under one frame for its two tenons, and two bases under the next frame for its two tenons. And for the second side of the tabernacle, on the north side twenty frames, and there forty bases of silver, two bases under one frame, and two bases under the next frame. And for the rear of the tabernacle westward, you shall make six frames. And you shall make two frames for corners of the tabernacle in the rear. They shall be separate beneath, but joined at the top at the first ring. Thus shall it be with both of them. They shall form the two corners. And there shall be eight frames with their bases of silver, 16 bases, two bases under one frame, and two bases under another frame. You shall make bars of acacia wood, five for the frames of the one side of the tabernacle, and five bars for the frames of the other side of the tabernacle, and five bars for the frames of the side of the tabernacle at the rear westward. The middle bar, halfway up the frames, shall run from end to end. You shall overlay the frames with gold, and shall make their rings of gold for holders for the bars. And you shall overlay the bars with gold. Then you shall erect the tabernacle according to the plan for it that you were shown on the mountain." Okay, so those were the, the coverings that were draped over the top. Now we get to the frame itself. And they were to use acacia wood again, and they were to make lots of little frames, pieces that they could dismantle and carry. They were each one to be 15 feet tall, 2.25 feet wide. 
and they would have two tenons, which are sort of like pegs at the bottom. So you'd have a bunch of these. And each one would have two silver bases to hold the board up. So you'd make a silver base with a hole in it, and then you'd have two of those, and each frame would slide into those two bases in order to stand up. So they needed a lot of silver for that, you can imagine. One side of the, of the tabernacle, the long side, would have 20 of these, which would amount to 45 feet. The tabernacle was 45 feet long. And the rear would have six and then two for the corners. And those would have been joined at the top to hold it all together. So you have 20 on the sides. And the rear would have had eight. So this is a 45 foot by 18 foot structure, including the corners. So you've got all these little frames standing up. They're silver bases. And then he says that you need to have five bars on the sides. So these would have run through the rings on the sides of these to hold it together, especially the middle one, which apparently covered the whole distance. So you probably would have had one long one going down the whole side, and then the other four would have been maybe less long just to hold it in place and frame it in that way. That way it doesn't blow down. They're not rattling back and forth into each other. And all of that wood was to be overlaid with gold. Even the crossbars, even the rings that held up the crossbars. It's a lavish, beautiful structure. So are you starting to get this in your mind now? When they had to assemble it after traveling, they would take each one of these frames out, 15 feet high, two and a piece wide. They would put the bases down, stack them all together. They would join them with the bars. So now you've got this U-shaped structure. 45 feet long, 18 feet wide, and then they would drape those four coverings over the top of it, the decorative one, and then the ones that would protect it from the elements on top. And this is what you have. So you can imagine that inside of the tabernacle, you can see the, the intricately woven blue and red and scarlet with the cherubim because there was no ceiling other than the tent, which was the tabernacle. And then we get to verse 31. And you shall make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. It shall be made with cherubim skillfully worked into it. And you shall hang it on four pillars of acacia overlaid with gold, with hooks of gold on four bases of silver. And you shall hang the veil from the clasps and bring the ark of the testimony in there within the veil. And the veil shall separate for you the holy place from the most holy place." You shall put the mercy seat on the Ark of the Testimony in the most holy place, and you shall set the table outside the veil, and the lampstand on the south side of the tabernacle opposite the table, and you shall put the table on the north side. You shall make a screen for the entrance of the tent of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen embroidered with needlework. And you shall make for the screen five pillars of acacia and overlay them with gold. Their hooks shall be of gold, and you shall cast five bases of bronze for them. All right. This is where you have the famous veil, not of the temple yet, but of the tabernacle, that would block off the most holy place, although I prefer the old-fashioned holy of holies. That is, in fact, what the Hebrew says. It's called a cognate accusative to emphasize how holy this place was. So there was a veil that was to be woven and embroidered just like the, the bottom covering of the tabernacle. Red, blue, and purple with cherubim, angels skillfully worked into it. And it was hung on four pillars of acacia wood. We're not giving the dimensions of them, but it says pillars, so think big. They would be gilded also, covered in gold, with silver bases. And this would hang from the top to form a wall that you could not pass. And there was to be a similar screen at the entrance of the holy place on the eastern side. This time it had five pillars of gold, 
but bronze bases. You'll notice that as you proceed outward from the, the most holy place, the metal decreases in quality because you're, you're getting away from the presence of the Lord. So what you have here, you have a framed tent. It's wooden. It's actually wood covered with gold, very well put together. Bases of silver rooted in the ground. These coverings that would have not just held it together, but protected it from outside elements. And it is divided into two rooms. You've got the screen across the front that perhaps these were curtains that you could walk through, or maybe the entire screen would have had to be moved. It's not entirely clear. Same thing for the veil of the most holy place. The entrance would be facing towards the east, and that is where you would find the tabernacle. I hope you can get this picture in your mind. Imagine walking inside. It would have been absolutely glorious because there's no outside light coming in. The only light is coming from the golden lampstand, this enormous 75-pound golden lampstand. And right over there is the veil of the temple. So what you're seeing on the sides is gold. It's all reflected. It's shining. And there's the the red and the blue and the scarlet, and it comes down, and you know right on the other side of that, and there's going to be the incense altar, which would have filled the room. It would have smelled incredible, and you wouldn't be able to go past that. Imagine that. Images of angels above, right, and, and even in front of you. And they were to place the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies, the most holy place. The table and the lampstand would go in the holy place. Only the priests could go in there. And only the high priest could enter the most holy place once a year. This was God's house. And this is what, in many ways, although it was describing the presence of God with man, it also was communicating that we are separated from God. That you cannot approach God. Even your best guy only dare come once a year. And he better have blood in his hands to cover the sins of himself and then of the people. But in Mark 15, 38, all that ended because when Jesus died on the cross, it says the earth shook and the veil of the temple was ripped in two. Can you imagine? It says later on in the book of Acts that many of the priests believed. I'll bet you this had something to do with it. You're in there swinging the incense. You're celebrating Passover. Then there's a giant earthquake and this beautiful veil that has been there for so long just rips right down the center. And there's the Ark of the Covenant sitting right there. Ah, oh, I can't look at it. I don't want to look. What's going on? Because Jesus, by his death on the cross, has secured access to God. We're no longer separated. Stephen would say in Acts 7.48, something that we all know, but we've got to remember, God does not dwell in temples made with hands. The whole earth is his. The earth is his footstool and the heavens are his throne. 1 Corinthians 6.19 says that you are a temple of the Holy Spirit. That you are God's holy place now. It's remarkable. And I hope you also noticed, although it should be obvious too, there was no image in here. They were not bowing down and worshiping anything there. It was only to commemorate who the Lord was because he's the immortal, invisible God, as the word tells us. So we've got... Most of the pieces that are inside, there's one more that's going to come later on. That's the golden incense altar. But now we're going to begin to look outside. So let's start chapter 27, do the first eight verses. You shall make the altar of acacia wood, five cubits long and five cubits broad. The altar shall be square and its height shall be three cubits. And you shall make horns for it on its corners. Its horns shall be of one piece with it and you shall overlay it with bronze. 
You shall make pots for it to receive its ashes, and shovels, and basins, and forks, and firepans. You shall make all its utensils of bronze. You shall also make for it a grating, a network of bronze, and on the net you shall make four bronze rings at its four corners. And you shall set it under the ledge of the altar, so that the net extends halfway down the altar." And you shall make poles for the altar, poles of acacia wood, and overlay them with bronze. And the poles shall be put through the rings, so that the poles are on the two sides of the altar when it is carried. You shall make it hollow with boards. As it has been shown you on the mountain, so shall it be made. Okay, so this is our fourth furnishing of six. This is the bronze altar, or the brazen altar, as I grew up calling it. So that's what I'm going to call it most of the time. And this was a square Piece. It was seven and a half feet on each side, so it was big, four and a half feet high, and the horns on the corners. This is what you would grab if you came to the temple or the tabernacle and you didn't want to be killed. It was in a holy place and you would demand a trial. But functionally, it probably was there so that the sacrifices did not roll off or fall. Overlaid with bronze. So it was wooden, but it was covered in bronze. And it had that bronze grate. It even called it a net there that was there to, to cook the meat on. It was like a grill. It was actually exactly like a grill. And this was removable, and this is where the rings would hang. So if you wanted to come and offer a sacrifice, you would put it up on top of this thing. It would grill. It would cook. Everything would drop beneath. And it was hollow so that you could get the ashes out. If you've ever barbecued in your backyard, you know the ashes tend to accumulate over time. And so all of its utensils were to be made of bronze too. Every shovel, every fire pan to clear it out. And it was also hollow so that you could light a fire underneath it. And it of course had those rings to carry it, except this time they were of bronze. Now what this probably was, that they would place this elevated on a mound of earth providing access beneath it to clear out the ashes. Now, you remember the Lord told them, my altar shall be made of uncut stones. Do you remember this? And you're not going to have stairs. You're going to have a ramp going up to it. So if you've got this box, essentially, which is your altar, everything's going to drop down. So you've got to have it elevated on a mound of earth or of uncut stones so that you can get in there with a shovel or with a rake and you can get all of those ashes out. And there would have been a ramp probably that the priests would have gone up and been able to work with the meat while it was there. And you'll notice the objects in the courtyard were to be bronze, not gold or silver, which I've already discussed what that means. This is where the sacrifices were made. Of all, of all the, the pieces in the tabernacle, this was the piece that got the most action, you might say. They were working on this thing all day, every day. This is where the sacrifices were made. We're going to read about this altar a lot when we get into the book of Leviticus and we discuss the kinds of sacrifices that were made. And when it refers to the altar, that's the altar that it's talking about, the bronze one that was in the courtyard. And it reminds us, and it reminded every Israelite, if you wanted to approach God, something needed to die. Because we are sinners and the wages of sin is death. Every time the priest offered a sacrifice, it was a reminder that something had to die in order to provide access for you. And it was a reminder and a prefiguring of Christ's sacrifice to come. Hebrews 10:12 talks about Jesus who offered a better sacrifice once for all. You didn't have to work that altar over and over again. Once was enough. Psalm 118, which was a psalm that they would sing when they were going up to the tabernacle and to the temple to worship. It says, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Sound familiar? Palm Sunday. 
They were singing this song when Jesus came in. Now we know that part, right? Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God and has made his light to shine upon us. And the next line, and they probably didn't think anything of it as they sang it on that day, bind the sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. So while they were singing, Jesus was riding into Jerusalem. They were singing, Hosanna, save us now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And that line that they all sang, probably without even thinking about it, Bind the sacrifice to the altar. And Jesus was that sacrifice, wasn't he? Who would be bound and would die, not on an altar, but on the cross for you and me. I'm very grateful that we don't have to come in and have repeated sacrifices in order to be cleansed. Once for all, Christ has done it. Amen? All right, we're getting close to the end here. Verse 9. You shall make the court of the tabernacle. On the south side, the court shall have hangings of fine twined linen, a hundred cubits long for one side. Its 20 pillars and their 20 bases shall be of bronze, but the hooks of the pillars and their fillets shall be of silver. And likewise for its length on the north side, there shall be hangings a hundred cubits long, its pillars 20 and their bases 20 of bronze, but the hooks of the pillars and their fillets shall be of silver. And for the breadth of the court on the west side, there shall be hangings for 50 cubits with 10 pillars and 10 bases. The breadth of the court on the front to the east, which is where the entrance was, shall be 50 cubits. The hangings on the one side of the gate shall be 15 cubits with their three pillars and three bases. On the other side, the hangings shall be 15 cubits with their three pillars and three bases. For the gate of the court, there shall be a screen 20 cubits long of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen embroidered with needlework. It shall have four pillars and with them four bases. All the pillars around the court shall be filleted with silver. Their hooks shall be of silver and their bases of bronze. The length of the court shall be a hundred cubits, the breadth 50 and the height five cubits with hangings of fine twined linen and bases of bronze." All the utensils of the tabernacle for every use and all its pegs and all the pegs of the court shall be of bronze. So we've seen the structure of the tabernacle, its coverings, its furnishings on the inside, the altar outside. Now we're not looking at the building itself, but the courtyard around it. Now the dimensions of this courtyard were 150 feet by 75 feet. This is pretty big. And they would have hanging curtains with bronze pillars and silver bases. With silver hooks and fillets. A fillet is something that was used to tie, so to hang the, the curtains. It doesn't give us many details other than to say it was fine linen. And there would be 20 pillars on the long sides, 10 on the short side. Only 6 on the east because that was the entrance. You'd have 3 on either side, 22 and a half feet on either side of a 30-foot entrance. So this is a big entryway. This is about to be a lot of people being able to come through with their animals to sacrifice. Very similar to the screen at the front of the holy place. This would be when the courtyard was closed, perhaps at night when, when visiting hours were over, I suppose. And he emphasizes that every utensil in it was to be bronze. Because as I think we've been able to see, everything in the tabernacle was to be beautiful. Everything was to be skillfully made. Everything was to make the people think, God lives here. This is a special place. What we're doing is special. This is not just coming in and checking in and clocking in and, you know, I, I was unclean, so I've got to go and offer a sacrifice. This was to remind them this is a serious thing. And while I don't want to get off into this for, for time's sake, but, you know, many people want to come in and bring accusation and, and you know, bring a lot of petty 
complaints against churches who spend a lot of money on their buildings or make it look nice or make the lights look good or anything like that. The tabernacle was, was made of gold. You know, the, the Lord, obviously, we don't want to be showy and we, and we don't want to be gaudy. But, you know, you, you think those cathedrals that are in Europe now, you look at those things and, and, you know, you see that and you go, all right, the Lord is worthy of that. The Lord is worthy of our best effort. So for the little things that we do here, if anybody ever wants to bring that up, you just say the Lord is worth it. We're not making any money off of it. We're just giving it back to Jesus. This was holy territory. It was cordoned off with a seven and a half foot high wall. So just over your head, you could hear what's going on and you could clearly see the tabernacle, which was twice that height above it. And this is where God's presence would be among his people. And they would worship there until the temple was built in Solomon's day. But now, of course, we know Jesus told us in Matthew 18, 20, that where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Our building, wherever it may be, is not the church. We are the church. Wherever we gather is where the Lord's presence is. We make the space holy because God is within us. And God does not and did not dwell in human-built houses, but sought to teach a lesson through this to his people of what it meant to approach God. Last two verses. You shall command the people of Israel that they bring to you pure beaten olive oil for the light, that a lamp may regularly be set up to burn. In the tent of meeting outside the veil that is before the testimony, Aaron and his sons shall tend it from evening to morning before the Lord. It shall be a statute forever to be observed throughout their generations by the people of Israel. So the last thing is oil for the lamps that would be lit and never go out. If you're familiar with the story of Hanukkah, where they took back the temple from the Greeks and they did not have enough oil to light the lamps. The lamp was never supposed to go out. And the Lord made the one day's worth of oil last for eight days because the Lord was, if the story is true, and I have no reason to doubt it because it's just the kind of thing God would do, the Lord is saying, I'll help you out. And that's why this passage matters. Oil is a symbol of the Holy Spirit too, as I said, related to the lampstand. Now there is much more, of course, for us to discuss. Next time we're going to examine the priests and their garments, what they wore, and We've not yet discussed the golden incense altar that would be directly in front of the holy place to fill the, the room with its, its scent, or what's called the bronze laver, the bronze place where the priests would wash themselves in the courtyard. But I hope you can start to get this picture in your mind, because this is a central feature of the Old Testament. It's, it's everywhere. Whenever it talks about them going to the sanctuary, anytime in the Psalms it talks about them coming to the altar, it's talking about this place and later the temple, which was just a bigger, grander, more permanent version of this. And I've, I've drawn out a lot of symbolism, but as we come to the end here, there's such a wealth of, of imagery that the Lord gave here that, you know, some people will quibble over which one is the right one. I, th I think it's all together. I, I just want to run through this. Now that we've got a picture of what this is, I've got five different ways we can see symbolically what God was doing here. Number one, it's symbolic of God's throne room. We talked about this last time. So picture the, the holy place. The most holy place is where the Lord is seated in glory above that blue firmament, which is the veil of the temple. Then you have the holy place with the fire of the Lord and the bread of the present, which represented the 12 tribes of Israel. God's people are there. And then you have the earth and the sea beneath. That's where God sits enthroned. So every time they went into this tabernacle, it was a reminder, God is above 
And beneath his throne are those fiery angels, the wheels within wheels of Ezekiel, right? And below is us. Number two, it was a symbol of creation. The Holy of Holies was the first heaven where God himself dwells. Or I should say the third heaven where God dwells. The second heaven is the holy place where it had the incense altar, like the clouds. It had the stars, which would have been the the seven lamps in the lampstand. And also the first heaven at the bottom where the earth and the sea is. So the altar is representative of the earth. And then there was the water. This was the place where they washed themselves. You've got a picture of creation that here we are on earth and above us are things that we don't fully understand and above all that is Jesus. They didn't know it was Jesus at the time, but Paul did. And he talks about when I was taken up to the third heaven, I saw things it wouldn't even be right for me to talk about. Much like the Holy of Holies, huh? It's symbolic of the Garden of Eden. You had God above in the Holy of Holies. In the holy place, you have God's people represented by the bread of the presence and the tree of life represented by the lampstand. Revelation will pick up that imagery an awful lot. That lampstand is, is very similar to the tree of life, which will be restored in the new world. And then outside of that, you had the outer world with the earth and the sea. God created the heavens and the earth, and then he planted a garden and put Adam in it. And the prophets will pick up this imagery quite a bit. Talk about the Garden of Eden and and use the temple and the tabernacle as imagery to describe how we've fallen from that. When we talk about the gemstones that the priests would carry, we'll, we'll get into that a little bit more. It's also a picture of the Exodus itself. You had the bronze altar. You had the bronze laver, the water and the earth. You had the waters that they passed through in the Red Sea, and you had the ground, the wilderness that they had to pass through when they were leaving Egypt. And then you get into the holy place where you've got the bread, you've got the manna, you've got the pillar of cloud, you've got the fire that doesn't go out. That's their wilderness wanderings. And then at the very end of it, in the Holy of Holies, they found the Lord, His presence at Mount Sinai. It's also a picture of Mount Sinai itself. God was above it all. In the holy place, you have memorials of all the experiences that the people had with the Lord. You had the lampstand that never went out, like the burning bush that burned and was not consumed. You had the incense altar, which is like the cloud that Moses himself was in when this story took place. You had the covenant table, the bread where the, the elders went up the mountain and ate in the presence of the Lord. And outside in the courtyard, you had the commemoration of them being consecrated at Mount Sinai, where they were to wash themselves for three days and then offer the sacrifices that were made so that they could enter into the covenant. There's a wealth of symbolism for you to meditate upon that the poets and the prophets will pick up upon. But above it all, however, there is, as we've been saying, the glorious picture of Jesus Christ and his work on the cross. God with us. He shall be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. If the tabernacle was to represent God's presence among his people, Jesus Christ is the full consummation of that promise. Hebrews 9 says it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with blood. But the heavenly things themselves have better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. All of this was a picture of our salvation. He was our sacrifice, the bronze altar. And he washes us in the waters of baptism, the bronze laver. He gives us his Holy Spirit to be the light of the world, the lampstand. He invites us into his house to share a meal with him, the bread, which we know represents his body. He sprinkled his blood on the mercy seat and tore the veil so that we could enter into God's holy place. So everything you see here that was exclusionary for the children of Israel 
is inviting for you and for me. It's the living reality that we share right now. My friend, if you are outside of Christ, you are outside of all these things. And the only option for you is to pay for your own sins on the altar, to burn up forever in a place called hell. But if you will believe on the Lord Jesus, confess him as the Son of God, the Lord, the true and living one, and repent of your sins, then you will be welcomed in. And God will come and make his home, build his tabernacle with you.